You're listening to Randall Wallace Presents, formerly Bridging the Political Gap, the number one American history podcast of 2024 by Feedspot.com. I think it would be good for the country. Why is that? Do you think we need maybe stronger leadership? No, I think we need to, need to clean up what we have. And I think that would be the best. Well, I think it's a very sad day for the country. Uh, it makes me sick, really, because I think without uh, a lot of the news media that it was against President Nixon that this wouldn't have taken place now. I think it's about the only thing he could do. There's uh, very little left, really, for him to do. If he hadn't resigned, he'd probably be impeached and removed. So I, I feel kind of sorry for him now, but I think it's the best thing for him to do. I think it's... Uh... I think it's pretty much an act of courage to do what he did at this late stage, even go on TV. And uh, I'm glad he did it. I think it's the best thing he could do in the interest of the country to keep it up together. It's becoming disjointed. I'm glad he did it. I think it's the only thing he could do under the circumstances. But I think it's unfortunate that he's the one that got caught because I think it's the same type of thing has been happening for years. Well, I'm sad that it was necessary. I um, I feel like he's tried to do what he felt was best. And who knows what you'd do if you had been in his shoes. Well, I'm sorry for him. You know, everybody have a right to, uh, you know, do what they can for our nation and everything. But to see anybody resign, I'm sorry for him. I guess my heart just goes out for people like that. I definitely think his resignation is long overdue, and uh, at this point, all I can say is God bless America. Jim Nixon has announced he will resign as President of the United States at noon tomorrow. Gerald R. Ford will be sworn in as the 38th President. And then later on that evening, we were told that he had made up his mind. And the next evening, we were all, the leadership was called to the White House. And I'll never forget it. It was the Oval Room, and uh, uh, he told us he'd made up his mind, and I shed a tear, because you never expect to hear a, a president Say he's going to quit. Six years ago today at Miami Beach, Richard Milhouse Nixon accomplished perhaps the most remarkable political comeback in American history. After campaigns in 1960 and 62 had branded him a loser, Nixon won the Republican presidential nomination and was on his way to the White House. And on this night, August 8th in 1968, he had this to say. America's in trouble today, not because her people have failed, but because her leaders have failed. And what America needs are leaders to match the greatness of her people. Because her leaders have failed. 
Now, six years later, Mr. Nixon's own leadership has failed. And tonight, two hours from now, he's going on television reportedly to tell the nation that he is quitting. The ultimate victim of the Watergate scandal that destroyed his administration. Good evening. We now begin our special, continuous, all-evening coverage of the ordeal of President Nixon. He has said nothing in public today, but according to some of his own White House aides, some of the people who are on Vice President Ford's staff, and senior members of Congress, when Mr. Nixon appears on television this evening, he will announce that he intends to resign. He will appear at 9 o'clock this evening, Eastern Daylight Time, and some members of Congress are saying that his resignation will become effective tomorrow morning and that the new president will take his oath around midday tomorrow. Regular program scheduled for this evening in order to bring you the following special report. From one end of the nation to the other and from overseas, ABC News will present live and continuous coverage of the developments surrounding today's presidential activities with emphasis on how these events affect this nation. Times Square is emptying out now, and New York's millions are heading home with extra editions of the daily papers detailing the crisis which has engulfed Richard Nixon and his presidency. The Twilight Com of Chicago finds the residents moving toward the security of familiar gathering places. People seem to want to be together. They want to help one another try and understand what a resignation will mean and what lies ahead. Chicago, like much of the country, is trying to hurry through a day so that thoughts can be ready to receive the address by President Nixon, an address that will probably signal an end to a tumultuous 28 years in public office. I'm Harry Reisner. I'm Howard K. Smith in Washington. Here in Washington, there's been a light rain for much of the day, and our mood has been rather like that, somber, expectably somber. Even our resident humorist, Art Buckwall, wrote an intentionally not funny column today. It was a kind of imaginary chat with dog checkers around the question of where did such a wonderful career go wrong. Democrats are not gloating. It could backfire if they displayed a mood like that, and Republicans have nothing to gloat about. But as Senator Aiken said yesterday in response to a question, if uh, they thought on the Hill that Mr. Nixon were going to put a voluntary end to this situation, there would be relief on Capitol Hill. Well, they think so, and there is relief. At the White House, a meeting is going on. There are five members of Congress meeting with the president. The members of Congress are James Eastland, the uh, president pro tem of the Senate, the man who's third in line for the presidency, a Democrat, Senator Mansfield of Montana, the leader of the Democrats in the Senate, Senator Hugh Scott, the leader of the Republicans in the Senate, and from the House, Carl Albert, second in line to the presidency, the Speaker of the House, and the leader of the Republicans in the House, John Rhodes of Arizona. ABC White House correspondent Tom Jarrell is there. Let's go to it. Tom? Howard, the president is now meeting in his executive office building with the five members of Congress that you just referred to. Uh, we saw him climbing the steps going into his EOB office as we came to make this broadcast. The day here has been one which uh, seems to be unreal. It is bizarre. It is uh, very sad. Uh, the White House has tried to keep this from being a carnival atmosphere, but uh, there have been major problems. They've succeeded in keeping news cameras off the lawns, but outside the lawns, crowds have stood around singing, chanting, many just standing and looking through the gates at the White House most of today. Inside, uh, the unreal climate is uh, compounded by the routine grinding out of news releases. There have been about 14 releases uh, issued by the 
uh, press office with presidential signatures on many of them, as though it were a routine day, appointment of judges and that sort of thing. The president in one of his last, perhaps his last uh, congressional act, vetoed an agricultural appropriations bill. So Why the Republic has troubles, television still has troubles. We've temporarily lost our line to Washington. Now we're going to go back to Washington. We're going to try it. As I was saying, from the uh, on the inside of the White House, much has been going on as it were a normal day, as if it were. Uh, there's been a turning out of news releases, appointment of judges, a veto of an agricultural appropriation bill. But of course, it is anything but normal. The faces are very sad. I've seen some of the veteran uh, White House aides who I've seen travel with the president over these six years, their eyes red from having wept, others with tears in their eyes as they talk to newsmen. Uh, it has been uh, a day where secretaries who have worked uh, in the West Wing for the uh, president in the White House, many have sat sort of stunned at their desk. Uh, others have uh, been weeping openly, others sort of laughing nervously, uh, many unsure uh, exactly what the future will be holding. They have been assured, the lower level White House assistants, uh, that they have no need to worry for their uh, future and for their jobs. The uh, president uh, we saw only briefly, and that was just a few moments ago, uh, he was going from the mansion section across West Executive Avenue and up the stairs into his EOB office. He was wearing a blue suit uh, for television tonight. I believe he had on a blue shirt. Uh, he was walking very slowly with a Secret Service man some distance behind him. There are probably uh, 30 to 40 stairs that he must climb as he goes into the EOB office. We've seen him climb those many times, and almost always he sort of springs up them, uh, very seldom uh, using the handrail for much more than just guidance. But tonight he looked very tired. Uh, he walked very slowly as he climbed each step, very methodically moving up. He turned and he saw uh, reporters, a few standing in the driveway looking over. They saw him. And uh, he then looked out to the street where there was some chanting and singing of hymns going on. He didn't wave. He just looked rather sad and went on into his EOB office. ABC's Bill Zimmerman has been here, and he's been following the day's developments also. For Gerald Ford, as for... Uh the president and everyone here at the White House, Tom, it has been anything but a normal day as well. Ford's uh, day began very early. He left his home at before or just after 7.30 this morning for the long drive into Washington, about a half hour. He met, of course, uh, in a very presumably eventful meeting with the president of the United States for 70 minutes. He attended a Medal of Honor ceremony. He attended a long meeting, had Secretary of State Henry Kissinger in for perhaps an hour and a half, an hour and 40 minutes. Uh, he issued a statement shortly thereafter indicating very strongly what he has indicated very strongly previously, that he believes Secretary of State Kissinger has done a brilliant job in the foreign policy area, that he would like to have Secretary of State Kissinger stay on in the job, and that he has reason to believe Secretary of State Kissinger will stay on in a Ford administration. Ford's uh, staff has been very difficult to get to today. They've been extremely busy, of course. Uh, first, they have postponed uh, and then repostponed and finally canceled a scheduled 12-day trip to the West Coast and Hawaii, which was to begin today by the Vice President. They have had to call all of the people involved uh, with that trip have had to cancel out all of the engagements they had scheduled. They have been busily preparing uh, for the transition, we're told, uh, for about two days. And uh, they've been busy. They have had no comment. 
And it seems uh, slightly ironical that the vice president, who is known as an open, uh, accessible man, has been uh, very hard to get to today. Now back to you, Howard. Thank you, Bill. Tom Gerald at the White House. This is clearly one of those formative days in American history. If the difficult situation is handled one way, it could bring tranquility to the nation and progress from our present situation. If it's handled in a different way, it could bring acrimony and division. That is to a great extent in the hands of the president and what he says tonight, but to some extent in our hands, and we're going to be very careful about it. The following situation uh, occurred at the White House. I believe the situation is absolutely unique uh, in the history of the White House. It certainly is unique in my experience in covering the White House. That reporters were not allowed to go into the White House grounds. Those reporters who were inside the White House were incarcerated in that small briefing room area and in their little broadcast hutches inside the White House for that long period. No explanation whatsoever as to what that was about. We do know that during that period, we know because we saw it happen, during that period, President Nixon walked briefly across the street from his small office in the executive office building, which is right next door to the White House, uh, over to the White House itself. Now, what else was going on, no one knows, or at least those who know are not saying, because uh, the, the president in the past has frequently done that. Uh, it was not unusual in the past for reporters to be held up for a minute or two while the White House uh, uh, officials guarded the president walking from one place to another. Uh, it may or may not be significant. It was one of the yet another strange thing that happened on this strange day in Washington. But what else is going on and what do we know? Uh, we're told by any number of staff members that the president does plan to announce his intentions tonight. Uh, as we said before, an overwhelming majority of them also add they do expect him to resign. The president reached a tentative decision to resign on Monday. He took a cruise with his family Monday night aboard the yacht, the Sequoia on the Potomac. His daughters asked him to reconsider. He did, but he didn't change his mind. There was that family dinner upstairs in the White House last night in which some members of the family cried. The president did not. Speechwriters went to work last night on an address for, as some close to them put it, possible use in a resignation. The tentative plan, and everybody emphasizes that it is a tentative plan at the moment, but the contingency plan at the moment uh, is as follows. For the president to make his intentions known tonight at 9 o'clock. The plan as of this hour, so far as can be determined, and emphasizing that it is a tentative contingency plan, is apparently for the president to announce his resignation effective sometime tomorrow. If indeed he goes through with that uh, resignation, then Vice President Ford will be sworn in sometime around midday tomorrow. Walter? Quite a few members of Congress are uh, demanding that the president uh, admit his guilt in his uh, speech tonight. And, and I'm wondering how much importance uh, you place on that demand. Well, I, I think the manner of his resignation and his whole tone and what he says is probably is going to be pretty important as to what happens, not only in the Congress following this, but in the country at large, whether we have a big period of a backlash, recriminations, and division or not. But with Vice President Agnew last year, there was no further prosecution, as, as everybody knows, but part of that agreement was that, uh, that he would agree to the publication of that 40-page indictment. That was regarded, I guess, as punishment enough, or at least they felt the record had to be clear. Now, there's nobody 
and the House who has the power really to grant him immunity uh, from impeachment. Uh, uh, there's no great stomach for it, of course. There have been two cases in the past, two federal judges uh, who resigned before impeachment. The impeachment procedure was dropped, but there was a Secretary of War in the last century, about 100 years ago, I think, who resigned but was impeached anyway. He wasn't convicted, but he was impeached. Uh, yes, there are many tag ends of this. There may be more evidence. We don't know who, who owns all this material, all the tapes and the rest of it. And what is concerning a lot of the lawyers in the House, and certainly the staff of the Judiciary Committee, is that uh, you're acting here for the future as well as for the present uh, terrible trouble we're in. There has to be some definite guide for future generations. So they feel, or those people anyway, that the House must take some kind of formal action. Uh, whether they by voice vote or something endorse the report, accept the report of the uh, Judiciary Committee and the Bill of Impeachment or just what they do. But it ought to be clear. It ought not be left, uh, you know, in a, in a cloud for the future. These things don't happen very often. So we will just have to wait and see what, uh, what Mr. Nixon says. And today there was a, a formal move at the Senate uh, to, in a sense, uh, uh, to make it the sense of the Senate to grant immunity to the president, which uh, admittedly they cannot legally do, but to simply say that it was the sense of the Senate that she, he should not be prosecuted in federal, state, local courts for any uh, uh, sins committed while he was in office. But uh, uh, the majority leader in the Senate, Mike Mansfield, and others came up right away and said that that was a, an uh, unconscionable interference with the uh, judicial branch of the government, and the Congress couldn't do that. It, it wouldn't be legally constitutionally binding, that's for sure. There is the theory, of course, that he could pardon himself in advance, but to do that, or even for him to, to do any plea bargaining of any kind now, it seems to me would degrade his departure. He is certainly going to do this with all the dignity he can summon. Uh, he must do that, and I'm, I'm sure you will. Uh, then there's a question of these friends of his coming to trial a month from tomorrow. He could pardon them in advance, as I understand it. Uh, whether he'd do that or not, we just have to wait and see. There's there are many angles to this that will be resolved maybe in the next hour or two. I think it is uh, noteworthy that in the last two or three of these sensational <coughs> days, we have not uh, had any positive indication of any kind that he has been plea bargaining no. on Capitol Hill or elsewhere. At the U.S. Senate today, a resolution was introduced which would make the president immune from future criminal prosecution if he resigns. Some Democrats opposed it, and even the Republican who introduced it, Edward Brooke of Massachusetts, said he wouldn't vote for it unless the president makes a full confession of his Watergate involvement. Here's Catherine Mackin with more on that. The sense of Congress idea seemed like a good idea to many senators at first, but then they all backed away, deciding to wait until they hear what the president says this evening. Specifically, they want to hear how he deals with his own guilt in Watergate. But other senators simply opposed the idea of congressional immunity. A resolution of that kind opposes a grave constitutional question based on the separation of powers between the executive and the legislative branches. And I think, basically, this, that this is a matter for the Department of Justice, the Attorney General, and Mr. Uh, Mr. Jaworski, the special prosecutor, to decide as they have in previous cases. In my judgment, it would be an intrusion upon the constitutional powers of the judiciary and the executive 
Moreover, I think it would be a very bad precedent for uh, Congress to initiate. If the resignation contained defensive language uh, with implications that it was, it was, uh, that there was still innocence, then it might be uh, the decision of the Congress, and it has to be first the House and then the Senate, that the trial should go forward to resolve the issue if there were still protesting that there was innocence. I can envision the fact that he might want to resign in the best interest of the country and yet might uh, consistently say that he was not guilty of any impeachable offenses. I do not think he would have to make an admission of guilt. I would want full confession from the president of his involvement in Watergate and all related incidents. I think the American people are entitled to know all of the facts, and I think the president must make a clean breast of it. And when he uh, does resign from office, I would agree that he certainly should not say that I'm resigning, but I'm not guilty of any offense. Howard Baker and John Tower, both conservative Republicans, warned that there could be danger in treating the president too harshly. They said that resignation is punishment enough, and that with resignation, people should leave well enough alone. Catherine Mackin, NBC News, at the Capitol. Bob, Howard, if I may take just a moment to talk about this issue of immunity. We really haven't had a chance today to explore it very well. And that is the question of uh, some uh, understanding that uh, Mr. Nixon, should he leave office, would not uh, have to face any uh, civil or uh, potential criminal actions. Uh, it's, it's the view of the uh, House leadership, both uh, Republican as well as Democratic, that Congress, one, probably doesn't have the power to grant uh, a bill of immunity. And number two, it would not be appropriate for Congress to do so. And yet I want to stress that I detected uh, nothing in that which meant that it was the wish of the leadership that the president should be prosecuted should he leave office. On the contrary, the, the wish of people that I've talked to in the House cloakrooms on both sides of the aisle has been that the country, if Mr. Nixon leaves office, uh, should uh, leave him alone. It's just that they don't want to formally try to do something in a legislative sense. And the crowds have gathered outside the White House. It reminds some of us of those crowds outside the chanceries of Europe uh, when governments were falling and when wars were impending who stood throughout the night waiting for announcement of one kind or another. It's that kind of a picture outside the White House today. And Bob Schieffer has been there. He's now at Lafayette Park right outside the White House. Bob? Walter, one of the uh, most unusual things about this uh, unusual period, as you just mentioned, is that uh, all week uh, people have begun to just sort of gather outside the White House. Uh, people have come uh, to the White House just behind us, stand near the gate there on Pennsylvania Avenue and across the street here at Lafayette Park. Uh, we're with some of them now. I'd like to just ask them, uh, what's your name, sir? Brian Davies. Brian, why are you here and where are you from? I'm from uh, Parker, Indiana, from the Midwest. One of the reasons I came, I just want to see, you know, what actually was happening. Usually when you're set off into the Midwest, you know, you don't find out what's happening in Washington, D.C. So I came to Washington, D.C. and uh, came to the White House to see what was happening tonight. How do you feel about all this? Uh, are you sad? Are you gloomy? Uh... At, at first, you know, when you think of the President of the United States, you feel that, you know, someone like that, you, high, you hold them in high esteem and you feel that they shouldn't be impeached. But when you, you know, you weigh all the odds and everything else and you find out what he has actually done and, you know, the, uh, the Watergate situation, you just find out that, you know, the only way is an impeachment and I, I believe it will help our economy and the United States will be better off. 
And uh, do you plan to stay out here uh, through the night? or? Uh... I'm going to stay as long until I find out what actually is going to happen, whether he's going to be in or whether he resigns tonight or if, if need be, resign tomorrow. How about you, gentlemen? Are you from out of town? Uh, yes, sir. I'm from Houston, Texas. What, are you just here on a visit? or No, I'm up here on business. business. I see. Uh, how did you happen to come down to the uh, White well, House? Well, uh, I was staying right next door here in a hotel, and so I just walked on down. I knew there would be a lot of activity. I saw some specials on, on the TV set in the room. Mm -hmm. yeah. How do you feel about all of this? <laughs> well, um, I feel sort of sorry for uh, President Nixon at this time. Uh, I think, though, that probably he's decided that it's probably for the better of the country that he uh, stepped down, because I don't think he can be an effective leader anymore. Even if he wouldn't resign, I don't see how he could be an effective leader. And I'd say the country probably is in need of uh, some effective leadership now, especially in the economy. How about this gentleman back here? Um, are you from out of town? Sir? Oh, I live here. I, I'm a student at George Washington University uh, Engineering School. Were you, uh, did you just come down just a few moments ago, or have you been here for a while? Or? We've been here just a few minutes. We came down to see if uh, anybody that was going to be here tonight, uh, if we were going to get a chance to see them. But uh, it's, uh, I don't know if it's an exciting time, but it certainly is memorable. I'm sure this is going to be with me forever. So uh, it's uh, kind of a strange thing. I think he should have possibly done this a couple of years ago. That's... I think it would have uh, been much better for the country if you'd have done this. Plan to stay out here for a while, or probably a little longer. I see. Walter, uh, this uh, applause you hear, what has happened is that a, a, a moving van has just uh, pulled up over at the White House. It may just be that, uh, that the van uh, is going down Pennsylvania Avenue, but at any rate, uh, it pulled up here, and uh, some of the people in this crowd uh, began to, uh, to applaud uh, when it did. That's about the story here. Uh, several hundred people uh, still here, Walter. They've uh, been here, uh, or crowds about this size, uh, through the week as uh, this thing began to build. Well, Walter, the latest thing that happened, of course, was the Republican conference in the Senate, a meeting of the Republican senators. They met for about half an hour, and they emerged, I'd have to say, grim and depressed, some of them stony-faced, some of them looking extremely sad. Peter Domenici of New Mexico said to me, it's a very sad time, and then he excused himself and left. They were told that the swearing-in of Gerald Ford would take place at noon at the White House and that there was no role for the Republican leadership. They are not involved in that. Some of their discussion was about scheduling matters. But others, other of the discussion, other parts of the discussion were about something which they considered more serious and more important, and that is Senator Brooks' resolution, which he, which he entered into the Senate today, a joint resolution, he hopes, which expresses the desire of Congress, the sense of the Congress, that there should be no further prosecution of the president after his resignation. And during the course of the meeting, Marlo Cook of Kentucky said he would like to join Senator Brooke in proposing that motion. He said, we cannot have reconciliation in this country. We cannot heal the wounds unless we free the president from the prospect of being tried, being put in jail. And Cook shook his head and said the prospect of a president, even a former president in jail, and he just shook his head and said, we have to do something to protect him from that. He said he felt that the American people were perhaps more forgiving than Washington and the members of the Congress and that that's what they want. He said, as a matter of fact, that all day long people have been calling his office, some of them weeping on the telephone and saying the president should not be impeached, should not resign, should stay.
stay on in office. He said it's a terrible time and we have to do what we can to try to bring back some mood of reconciliation to heal the wounds. We've got to get it over with, he said. We cannot keep going on and on. And Senator Javits added a further dimension to that when he said it's the job of the Congress to isolate the president from the Watergate problems. And I took him to mean by that that it's the job of the Congress to isolate the new president, Jerry Ford, he said. It's the job of the Congress to isolate the new president from the problem of the decision of having to decide should he grant clemency, should he make decision, decisions, should he call off the special prosecutor, should he uh, try to have the executive branch call off any further investigations, any further prosecutions of the president and the people around him. And Javits seemed to think that Congress should perhaps take that off of Jerry Ford's hands, make the decision itself, and settle it for him. Now, a number of the senators, a number of the members of the House, are spending this evening in their offices. They're going to watch the president on television in their offices, then they're going to consult with each other, and some of them said that they would then make themselves available to comment after they have seen and heard what the president had to say. Before, they simply wanted to go be alone, express their sadness to us, but they wanted to be alone, basically. They did not want to talk, and most of the newsmen here, in fact, all of the newsmen here, respected that, asked them a few questions, and let them go. That's about the situation at the, on the Hill now. It's just like the rest of the country, Walter. Everybody is just waiting. Well, I just wonder, the two uh, sons-in-law present, too, with the two daughters? IFB. Give me the IFB. Uh, Virginia, are the two sons-in-law present with daughters Julie and Tricia? Howard, I'm sorry, I lost the, lost the IFB. Can you give me that? Well, I, I was wondering if the fam, the whole families of the daughters are there. They're two uh, husbands, Julie's husband, David, and uh, Trisha's husband, Edward Cox. Uh, yes, the families did arrive here, and uh, they have been here some time. The whole family had dinner together last night. As a matter of fact, it's reported here that the family tried very hard to talk the president out of this resignation speech tonight, but the president was firm. Also, I'm told by Jerry Warren that there have been 10,000 phone calls alone today urging the president to stay in there, not resign. Well, this thank is Virginia you. Sherwood from the White House. Thank you very much, Virginia. Um, Harry, we're going through uh, a very dramatic day here in Washington. <clears throat> the physical distance between Washington, D.C. and Whittier, California, the town in which Richard Nixon grew up, is about 3,000 miles. Emotionally, though, there was until very recently no distance at all. Richard Nixon cherished Whittier and said so often, Whittier cherished Richard Nixon and said all of his works and helped elect him twice. But now, it's not the same. Frank Burkholzer was in Whittier today, and here is his story. Richard Nixon grew up and became a man here in this suburb of Los Angeles, here at Whittier College. And his tragedy has a special meaning for the community of Whittier. Uh, it's with a mixture of emotions that I'm here today because I grew up in this very area and uh, rode the school bus and uh, at the East Whittier School where we would drop off the Nixon boys at their corner right where we are today. Dr. Paul Smith would teach constitutional history to Nixon the student a little differently next time. Uh, I would emphasize the William Penn's holy experiment in government, wouldn't we all? Uh, Benjamin Franklin's tremendous emphasis upon humility, wouldn't we all, you see? Uh, tremendous emphasis upon the Adams family, the most ethical family, I suppose, almost in American political history. Those are, we emphasized them then, but I'd do it all over again with even more emphasis. We all need it very, very badly. Not only Nixon, but you and I and all of us. That's what's needed. A renaissance in this country of a kind of a spiritual morality. 
That's what the lesson of this is. There are other old friends here, too distressed to say anything. Frank Berghoser, NBC News, Whittier, California. Gerald Ford's home is Grand Rapids, Michigan. He, too, has a deep affection and close relationship with his hometown. And Grand Rapids has always liked and admired Gerald Ford, people of all kinds and both major political parties, as we learn in this report from Jack Paxton. Grand Rapids, an industrial city of 200,000, is the second largest in Michigan. Here people call Ford Jerry, whether they know him or not. It's not disrespect. It is genuine affection. It's hard to find even a Democrat here who has a bad word to say about him. I think he's a very fine man, and I think he's very honest. You're all right in my books. Oh, I guess he's better than nothing, right? I think he would make a good president. I think it's the kind of a man the country needs right now. I like him. <laughs> Even while Vice President Ford has stayed in close touch with Grand Rapids, his seat of power as a congressman, and from which he would draw some of his top aides as president. Those aides who now work for him in Washington are referred to there as the Michigan Mafia. The phrase implies efficiency more than anything else. Ford grew up in Grand Rapids. Here he was two. His high school graduation picture in the Navy during World War II. Here, a year after marrying Elizabeth Bloomer, his wife of 25 years. They now have four children. Every year recently, Ford has made a special trip home to play a highly competitive game of golf, a sort of family championship, with his three brothers, two of whom we talked to. Extremely competitive. Uh, competitive in athletics, competitive in school. Uh, everything he did, he uh, tried to excel at. Uh, it was always the hero for me, and uh, it's just a question of he's going further and further on the line. He's become more of a hero every day. A few weeks ago, when Ford came home for a local festival, hundreds of people, many of them Democrats, patted him on the back and called him Jerry, as they always had. They talked about how Ford, as a congressman, had always helped the people in his district, whatever their party or color. They were certain he would always do that because, they said, he never changes. Jack Paxton, NBC News, Grand Rapids, Michigan. Worldwide, the reaction to what may is happening today in Washington was uneasiness. The South Vietnamese worried about a renewed enemy offensive now that the President Nixon may be on the verge of resigning. In the Middle East, both Arabs and Israelis worried over the prospects of a final peace settlement. And the European NATO countries worried about arms and troop negotiations with the Soviet Union. The Russian people were told on television tonight, on Soviet television, that the president is about to resign. The president was in the Soviet Union only six weeks ago. And that brings us to an end of the nightly news, but our coverage of the president's story tonight is only beginning. He'll be on television at 9 o'clock Eastern Time, and until then, and for the rest of this evening, we'll be here, on the air, covering this story whichever way it leads us. And from every indication we have now, it will lead us in a tragic direction. We'll be back in a minute.
Hi, this is Randall Wallace, uh, your host for Bridging the Political Gap. I want to thank you first for tuning in to our podcast and invite you to come to our website, randallwallace.com. There you can get a copy of our book, Always Vote Your Conscience, Don't Take It Personally, and Don't Fight the Same Old Battles Over and Over Again, with a lot of policy suggestions and things that I think everyone could embrace, an argument for why we need to be working together instead of fighting with each other. Also, you can take a look at the first 11 episodes of this podcast, which was a podcast documentary that looked at the World War II generation of bipartisan leadership that built the American century and the lessons we can learn from them to apply to today's situations. Again, thanks for tuning in to our podcast. And if you've enjoyed our show, please leave us a review at wherever you get your podcast. And now, let's get back to the show. John, we understand that President Nixon may have moved from his hideaway office in the executive office building, which is just next door to the White House, and now is back in the West Wing or the working wing of the White House, where he probably has his speech well in mind at this hour. He has scheduled a meeting with the bipartisan leadership of Congress for about 20 minutes from now at about 7.30 Eastern Daylight Time. It probably will be his last meeting with that group as the President of the United States. Tomorrow morning early, he is expected to leave for California with his entire family, which is here with him tonight. Mrs. Nixon, Tricia and Eddie Cox, and Julie and David Eisenhower. The President is not expected to be at the swearing-in of Gerald Ford as President. What the President will have to say tonight, we don't know. He likes to work on these speeches himself, but he will also have the assistance of Pat Buchanan, one of his principal speechwriters and political advisors, and Ray Price, who gives the president assistance, especially on momentous occasions. And this certainly is a momentous occasion for Richard Nixon, his last day probably as president of the United States. That bipartisan leadership meeting is expected, as I say, to begin in about 20 minutes. There was a, an unusual situation at the White House about 20 minutes ago. It was sealed off, in effect, uh, nothing panicky to read into that, The president apparently was about to walk across the street and the White House guards decided not to have any reporters or other people going in and out of any of the gates. The press room was sealed off as well. All the reporters and cameramen were there and they were not permitted to leave. Apparently, that was an attempt to keep President Nixon from being hounded, if you will, on this the final evening as he made a solitary walk. Tom, John Chancellor here. Is this speech we're going to get tonight, do you think, and I know you probably can't say absolutely, the one the president told Price and Buchanan to begin drafting last Sunday up at Camp David? I think that uh, it probably has changed, as almost everything else has, John, over the past few days. He gave them some ideas. There was an interesting anecdote recently out about the president's recommendation to Spiro Agnew as he left office. He recommended the speech of King George, if you'll have to correct me on this. Edward. King Edward, I'm sorry. King Edward, I knew I was wrong. As he left the throne of England, calling that a speech of elegance and grace, and recommended the Spiro Agnew speechwriters take a look at that. 
Now, whether there will be any clue in that recommendation to Vice President Agnew in the speech that we hear tonight, I don't know. But I would guess that there have been any number of ideas, and the final product will be, as it almost always is in the case of Richard Nixon, largely his work with some of the ideas and the grace of language coming from Ray Price and Pat Buchanan. Tom, while I have you, I'd like to say that the, is it fair for us to believe that as of last Sunday, the president knew that something like this would take place? As of last Sunday, he knew that it was something that he had to consider actively and seriously. It was a number, it was one of the principal considerations and contingencies that Richard Nixon had to consider in this final week. He was getting a realistic appraisal of what Congress felt, even though he was not meeting with Republican congressmen or with Democrats, certainly. He was getting that appraisal, we're told, from the daily news summaries at the White House, which are accurate and in detail. And they were reflecting to him the erosion of support that he had within those two houses, especially after the publication of the June 23rd transcripts. So I think that Richard Nixon probably knew that this would be a week of very personal and painful and momentous decision-making for him. Tom, I've, I've read, and it has been reported today, that Henry Kissinger was with the family, the Nixon family, last night, and that he counseled that resignation would probably be the best course, and that General Alexander Haig counsel that resignation might be the best course. What's your view of these reports which haven't been confirmed yet? I think that these reports are a largely realistic speculation, uh, John. Uh, so far as I know, General Haig and Secretary Kissinger haven't been talking to very many people. We do know that Secretary Kissinger was there for two hours last night in the executive mansion talking with President Nixon and that certainly the foreign policy would be a top priority consideration for the president. He did say that he would base his decision on the national interest. Secretary Kissinger was concerned about the posture of the United States during this very grave time, about the kind of unified front that we present internationally. And I'm sure that much of the conversation focused on that, whether it would be wise for President Nixon to continue to fight his case, first in the House and then in the Senate, and possibly weaken the united front of the United States internationally. Tom, is it fair for us to believe another published report that the president arrived at his decision late last night or early this morning in the private quarters on the second floor of the White House? It's very hard for me to say, John, but judging from the events of today, that is precisely where he made his decision because that's where we know he was last night. And I have just been told by John Cochran, who has come over from the White House, that is where he is now, in the mansion, presumably with the family, which has been there all day today. Early this morning, Trisha and Eddie Cox took a early morning stroll, but there has been nothing else. John, you have something else you want to no, do? No, I want to thank you, Tom, and I'd like to ask you to stand by, if you will, please. One of the impressive things to me has been the consistency with which the president in his statements about Watergate over the past year and a half has seemed to underestimate the seriousness with which other people took what was happening. He always seemed to be just several stages behind uh, public opinion on them. I remember when he was running for the presidency, I did some commentaries and he used occasionally to listen. I did some saying I didn't care who won the election, but I hope no one would win a landslide because landslide presidents always became overconfident and made mistakes. And I cited Harding and Franklin D. Roosevelt in the court packing scheme and President Johnson in Vietnam. 
And after the election in January, President Nixon invited me to the White House and said, I listened to your comments about worrying about a landslide president. Well, you don't have to worry about this president. I'm going to be very careful. Well, that was about three months before the roof fell in. And uh, the president never seemed to catch up with the seriousness that other people attributed to the affair. Harry? I remember very well when you made that remark about landslides, Howard, and I remember that I chuckled, and I have promised since that I will never chuckle again when you say something at the end of an election night. It turns out that Steve Bull has seen the president. He's one of the few people that we have been able to talk to today who has actually uh, seen the president for any length of time. And Connie, uh, what were some of the quotes from Steve? Steve said that uh, the president was, quote, unbelievably serene and that his exterior, he called it placid. Uh, he, without saying that the president has decided to resign, he said that the president had no second thoughts about his decision. Also, we asked him if uh, he was at ease with his decision, and Steve said, who knows? Uh, he said that the president was not distraught with his uh, decision. He was not distraught today, but he was distraught yesterday when he was trying to decide precisely what to do. Uh, we asked Steve just what he intends to do, and he said that he was going to fly to California with the president, along with presidential press secretary Ronald Ziegler, and that uh, he intended to stay with the president as long as he needed him. Uh, he also said that he wishes the president would decide not to resign, in other words, that he would change his mind, that he still had faith in the president and he was very loyal to the president. And he also said that uh, he thought that the president did not commit an impeachable offense and that the president's judgment was good and uh, that the president should do what he thought was best for the country, though. And if he thought resignation was the best thing, then that's what he should do. That's right. Let me add one more thing about Steve Bull, and that is that he, he said he thought the president was amazing because of his mood and his manner today compared to perhaps the past few days when he was trying to come to his decision. He said that he has not said goodbye to his staff yet, and he would not. He didn't say when he would say goodbye to his staff. With respect to Pat Buchanan, uh, I saw Buchanan in the driveway of the White House, and he was uh, just getting into his car and driving away. He said he had not seen the president in two days, and that he assumed that the speech was completed, but he had uh, he had not seen the president and had no knowledge of how the president felt or what the president was thinking. We had been told earlier in the day by people uh, close to the inner circle at the White House that the speech the president is making tonight would be prepared primarily by the president himself with uh, some help from uh, Ray Price and one or two other speechwriters in polishing the language and that Mr. Buchanan, while involved in helping the president put together the speech, was not as intimately involved as uh, he had been in some others. So that uh, would dovetail with what Patrick Buchanan said. Uh, it is obvious that uh, Mr. Buchanan, who long had the justifiable reputation of being one of the most loyal people to Richard Nixon anywhere around this president, uh, is disappointed to say the least at the way things has, have gone. It is fair to say, however, that uh, Mr. Buchanan and, and others who shared his feeling in the White House uh, over the past few days in particular have uh, their whole demeanor, their whole manner, their whole tone and mood and atmosphere has been one of uh, gentlemanly resignation. Walter? It's a very strange office. I suppose there's no question that it's the most powerful office in the world, uh, even as opposed to, say, the Mao Zedong or the leadership of Russia. And, and I think the battering that this presidency has taken in the last, last now, 11 years is, more, is a stronger testimony to the strength of this country than anything else possibly could be. We survived assassination. We survived an extremely unpopular war. We then survived the uh, driving out of office of Lyndon Johnson by a popular movement in 1968. 
And now, uh, apparently, we have survived the worst uh, scandal in the history of the presidency, the, depending to some extent on what uh, the man who was in office during this scandal does in the next few minutes. Yes, that uh, apparently the men in Philadelphia who created the Constitution created something much stronger than any of its parts and much stronger than the sum of its parts. It has a spirit all its own, and I haven't seen it in my travels around the world anywhere else in the world, not in any of the free countries either. Uh, in just a moment now, the President of the United States will begin uh, his speech, perhaps his last speech from the White House, and um, we'll see him in just a few moments. We have 40 seconds to go now. The president has taken his uh, place at the table in the White House where he's going to speak. This is, uh, everyone assumes, a speech in which he's going to state his reasons for changing his mind and possibly his reasons for resigning from the high office. There's the White House as it looks tonight. The uh, rear entrance, the diplomatic entrance to the White House. And uh, now, here now, the next uh, picture will be the President of the United States. This is indeed an historic day, the only time a president uh, has ever resigned from office in our nearly 200 years of history. You see the White House there, and in the, uh, in the White House, in just a few moments now, President Nixon will be appearing before the people perhaps for the last time as President of the United States. He is ready before the cameras and the microphones now, and we will be going in just a few seconds into uh, that room where the President will make his fateful announcement to the American people. We are standing by now for President Richard Milhouse, Nixon, 37th President of the United States. Good evening. This is the 37th time I have spoken to you from this office where so many decisions have been made that shape the history of this nation. Each time I have done so to discuss with you some matter that I believe affected the national interest. In all the decisions I have made in my public life, I have always tried to do what was best for the nation. Throughout the long and difficult period of Watergate, I have felt it was my duty to persevere, to make every possible effort to complete the term of office to which you elected me. In the past few days, however, it has become evident to me that I no longer have a strong enough political base in the Congress to justify continuing that effort. As long as there was such a base, I felt strongly that it was necessary to see the constitutional process through to its conclusion, that to do otherwise would be unfaithful to the spirit of that deliberately difficult process and a dangerously destabilizing precedent for the future. But with the disappearance of that base, I now believe that the constitutional purpose has been served and there is no longer a need for the process to be prolonged. I would have preferred to carry through to the finish whatever the personal agony it would have involved. And my family unanimously urged me to do so. 
but the interests of the nation must always come before any personal considerations. From the discussions I have had with congressional and other leaders, I have concluded that because of the Watergate matter, I might not have the support of the Congress that I would consider necessary to back the very difficult decisions and carry out the duties of this office in the way the interests of the nation will require. I have never been a quitter. To leave office before my term is completed is abhorrent to every instinct in my body. But as president, I must put the interests of America first. America needs a full-time president and a full-time Congress, particularly at this time with problems we face at home and abroad, to continue to fight through the months ahead for my personal vindication would almost totally absorb the time and attention of both the President and the Congress in a period when our entire focus should be on the great issues of peace abroad and prosperity without inflation at home. Therefore, I shall resign the presidency effective at noon tomorrow. Vice President Ford will be sworn in as president at that hour in this office. As I recall the high hopes for America with which we began this second term, I feel a great sadness that I will not be here in this office working on your behalf to achieve those hopes in the next two and a half years. But in turning over direction of the government to Vice President Ford, I know, as I told the nation when I nominated him for that office 10 months ago, that the leadership of America will be in good hands. In passing this office to the Vice President, I also do so with a profound sense of the weight of responsibility that will fall on his shoulders tomorrow and therefore of the understanding, the patience, the cooperation he will need from all Americans. As he assumes that responsibility, he will deserve the help and the support of all of us. As we look to the future, the first essential is to begin healing the wounds of this nation to put the bitterness and divisions of the recent past behind us and to rediscover those shared ideals that lie at the heart of our strength and unity as a great and as a free people. By taking this action, I hope that I will have hastened the start of that process of healing which is so desperately needed in America. I regret deeply any injuries that may have been done in the course of the events that led to this decision. I would say only that if some of my judgments were wrong, and some were wrong, they were made in what I believed at the time to be the best interest of the nation. To those who have stood with me during these past difficult months, to my family, my friends, 
the many others who joined in supporting my cause because they believed it was right. I will be eternally grateful for your support. And to those who have not felt able to give me your support, let me say I leave with no bitterness toward those who have opposed me. Because all of us in the final analysis have been concerned with the good of the country, however our judgments might differ. So let us all now join together in affirming that common commitment and in helping our new president succeed for the benefit of all Americans. I shall leave this office with regret at not completing my term, but with gratitude for the privilege of serving as your president for the past five and a half years. These years have been a momentous time in the history of our nation and the world. They have been a time of achievement in which we can all be proud. Achievements that represent the shared efforts of the administration, the Congress, and the people. But the challenges ahead are equally great. And they, too, will require the support and the efforts of the Congress and the people working in cooperation with the new administration. We have ended America's longest war. But in the work of securing a lasting peace in the world, the goals ahead are even more far-reaching and more difficult. We must complete a structure of peace so that it will be said of this generation, our generation of Americans, by the people of all nations, not only that we ended one war, but that we prevented future wars. We have unlocked the doors that for a quarter of a century stood between the United States and the People's Republic of China. We must now ensure that the one quarter of the world's people who live in the People's Republic of China will be and remain not our enemies, but our friends. In the Middle East, 100 million people in the Arab countries, many of whom have considered us their enemy for nearly 20 years, now look on us as their friends. We must continue to build on that friendship so that peace can settle at last over the Middle East and so that the cradle of civilization will not become its grave. Together with the Soviet Union, we have made the crucial breakthroughs that have begun the process of limiting nuclear arms. But we must set as our goal not just limiting, but reducing and finally destroying these terrible weapons so that they cannot destroy civilization and so that the threat of nuclear war will no longer hang over the world and the people. We have opened the new relation with the Soviet Union. We must continue to develop and expand that new relationship so that the two strongest nations of the world will live together in cooperation rather than confrontation. 
around the world, in Asia, in Africa, in Latin America, in the Middle East, there are millions of people who live in terrible poverty, even starvation. We must keep as our goal turning away from production for war and expanding production for peace so that people everywhere on this earth can at last look forward in their children's time, if not in our own time, to having the necessities for a decent life. Here in America, we are fortunate that most of our people have not only the blessings of liberty, but also the means to live full and good and by the world's standards, even abundant lives. We must press on, however, toward a goal not only of more and better jobs, but a full opportunity for every American. And of what we are striving so hard right now to achieve, prosperity without inflation. For more than a quarter of a century in public life, I have shared in the turbulent history of this era. I have fought for what I believed in. I have tried to the best of my ability to discharge those duties and meet those responsibilities that were entrusted to me. Sometimes I have succeeded and sometimes I have failed. But always, I have taken heart from what Theodore Roosevelt once said about the man in the arena whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs and comes short again and again because there is not effort without error and shortcoming but who does actually strive to do the deed, who knows the great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumphs of high achievements, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails, while daring greatly. I pledge to you tonight that as long as I have a breath of life in my body, I shall continue in that spirit. I shall continue to work for the great causes to which I have been dedicated throughout my years as a congressman, a senator, vice president, and president. The cause of peace, not just for America, but among all nations prosperity, justice, and opportunity for all of our people. There is one cause, above all, to which I have been devoted and to which I shall always be devoted for as long as I live. When I first took the oath of office as president five and a half years ago, I made this sacred commitment to consecrate my office, my energies, and all the wisdom I can summon to the cause of peace among nations. I've done my very best in all of the days since 
to be true to that pledge. As a result of these efforts, I am confident that the world is a safer place today, not only for the people of America, but for the people of all nations. And that all of our children have a better chance than before of living in peace rather than dying in war. This, more than anything, is what I hoped to achieve when I sought the presidency. This, more than anything, is what I hope will be my legacy to you, to our country, as I leave the presidency. To have served in this office is to have felt a very personal sense of kinship with each and every American. In leaving it, I do so with this prayer. May God's grace be with you in all the days ahead. of the whole country. Uh, on the whole, it seemed to me um, as effective, as magnanimous a speech as Mr. Nixon has ever made. And I suppose there'll be many even among his critics who will say that uh, perhaps that few things in his presidency became him as much as his manner of leaving the presidency. Certainly no attacks on his enemies, not on the press, as we did have from Vice President Agnew a year ago when he resigned. I think people will find it very hard to fault this. A man is certainly entitled to call attention with his last words as president to what he considers his positive acts, which are those of trying to make peace in this world. Obviously, that is how he wishes to be remembered. And perhaps that will be the positive side of his record, even for many years to come, I think. It certainly was a conciliatory speech. Uh, he even paid uh, tribute to those who have been in opposition to him, which hasn't always been the case with President Nixon's speeches, no. and said he was sure that their interests in the country were the same as his, but they approached the problem from different uh, viewpoints. One of President Nixon's shortest speeches, his last speech, it lasted just about 16 minutes. It was a speech with a great deal of grace. Uh, Harry, can you hear me? I, I can indeed, Howard. I thought his quotation from Theodore Roosevelt was uh, very impressive. It's an old favorite of his, and it's, uh, it's part of the whole Nixon personality that he has always believed in the strength and the beauty of a man making a fight. I was, I thought it was... Well, it was obviously an impressive speech. It could not have failed to be. And it, uh, certainly in terms of some of the speeches Richard Nixon has made, it was not divisive. It, on the other hand, did not, if uh, what we heard earlier from people who had been talking to congressmen, who said that they felt that he must, in, this, in his uh, final speech, must admit some culpability in the things that had happened. It did not do that at all. His only reference to his problems was that he said where his judgments had been wrong, he regretted them. But he didn't talk about why he was leaving, really. He just said he did not think he would have the support in Congress for his programs. 
I think in a very natural way, he talked about his accomplishments and that it was noticeable that they were entirely in terms of accomplishments, entirely in terms of foreign affairs, which uh, has always been the place where he felt he was most expert. I, um, I followed his first uh, vice presidential campaign, covered uh, him and Eisenhower, and um, was unimpressed with many of his speeches then, and later I was sent to cover some of his trips abroad. And I saw a real knack and a different Nixon handling foreign affairs. He was fascinated by them and obviously very, very good at handling them. But I, too, was impressed that he made very little reference to the Watergate affair and said that his base in Congress would not allow him to continue. He didn't say anything about his base among the people. Um, it was, uh, that was in the more traditional pattern that this president has used. The implication I got out of the first three minutes of the speech was that uh, he was leaving because of some peculiar thing happening in Congress, which uh, uh, the people might or might not support. It's, uh, there's a pattern to the way this president has always spoken, which didn't really change tonight. Uh, he obviously did not want to resign. He was pushed. He, he, did, he did not uh, agree to having participated in any wrongdoing he said he apologized for any injuries that might have occurred to the nation in the course of what has gone before but he did not say that anything was wrong well it's uh, things have moved so fast that i imagine he has not completely sorted out his own thoughts you spoke of traveling with him on foreign assignments just last month i watched him in moscow of course where he was uh, exuberant and ebullient and uh, was very much on top of things. And at the final dinner that he gave, I suppose the last state dinner that he will give as president, I don't think there's been one since then, a formal state dinner that he gave in the American embassy in Moscow with all of the hierarchy of uh, communist Russia there, he made during the evening at least six reference references in toasts and in informal remarks to the fact that these same people would be gathering next year to continue this substantial progress toward detente, toward uh, a settlement of uh, all the issues which have made the Cold War War since the end of World War II. He kept mentioning next year and the same people in the personal relationship. Chairman Brezhnev, a cold-eyed realist if I ever saw one, never mentioned next year with the same people. And even at that time, on uh, July 2nd, I guess it would have been, in the toast, Chairman Brezhnev made his toast not only to the President of the United States and the American people, but to the United States Congress. But uh, Vice President Ford did today when he presented medals posthumously to some war heroes, he said in the name of the Congress and the President. He put the Congress first. <laughs>
Thank you for listening to Bridging the Political Gap. If you've liked what you've heard, please share it. And we would love to hear from you and your thoughts on, on our show. So if you'd like to, please leave a review wherever you get your podcast. And until next time, thanks again, and so long for now.